0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30 for 30% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The feed hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. On today's podcast, we have a little change of pace. One of my good friends, Sean
1: McBay, recently took up ice fishing, which has been something I've done now for a couple of decades. Being so new and not really sure of all the ins and outs, Sean and I had talked quite a bit on how to get started, what the bare necessities are, and what the pros and cons are for various levels of equipment. Ice fishing is another one of those things where it seems like you can spend as much or as little as you want, but there are definitely certain things you don't want to skimp out on. We recorded this episode in the hopes that anyone else new to ice fishing might have a resource to look into and be able to help guide their decision-making process for choosing rods, augers, lines, reels, shelters, and electronics. I'm on the on the computer right now with Sean McVeigh from Sean's Outdoor Adventures. I'm sure a lot of you guys are aware of his YouTube channel. He's got a much bigger following, I think, at, at this point than I do. That said, something that is newer to Sean, but not necessarily new to me, is ice fishing. You know, since moving to Iowa... And I guess just recently in the last year or so, right, you've you've really wanted to try and dig into ice fishing as a new thing and and maybe go into a little bit more detail and, and try to really I guess get the most out of it. Is ice fishing something that you guys really even had access to when you lived out in Pennsylvania?
2: No. Um, where I so I grew up in southeast Pennsylvania and you know, winters were very unpredictable sometimes they'd be really mild like we wouldn't there was a little pond down down the street from where i grew up on a golf course that if it was a fairly cold winter we would get about a month of playing ice hockey on that pond and that would be about it i mean because we just didn't get the the real hard cold temps that you get out here and that later in life, I, I lived in kind of in central Pennsylvania. And once in a while, you'd hear somebody mention ice fishing, but it wasn't a thing because um, it just, we didn't get the real cold snaps to give a lot of confidence to be out on the ice. Now, moving out to Iowa, I moved out in 2018. Ice fishing didn't come onto my radar really till this year, 2022. Um, I thought about it the last two winters. But i was like you know what i just i don't even know when it's when you can trust walking out on the ice you know i just don't and after really living out here and seeing how cold it gets for extended periods of time i'm like you know what i definitely feel confident like this this ice is thick enough i can go out on the ice and so this year i was like you know what i i want to do something this time of year i love fishing and you know in the summertime i love the outdoors i need I need this opportunity to get out there, so i I started to get into it, and then Garrett, I knew you know you have a history with it, so that's when I started to ask you some questions you know as far as what how to get into it and and so um you know, I was excited to be able to come on your podcast today and just talk to you and and your listeners about you know kind of my journey through that and what I learned you know. As far as equipment and getting started, and all.
1: yeah. And just to provide some context too, from from my you know, I guess counterpoint of my upbringing, I grew up in Wisconsin for at least a lot of my memorable childhood. You know, I lived in a couple of places. When I was very young, but Wisconsin, obviously, ice fishing is pretty big as it is in Minnesota where I live now. And that was something that probably even before the age of ten, I'd be out there with either my dad or my grandpa, and we'd be. Out there fishing bluegills or big perch and you know shallow weed beds and and you know just sight fishing. We didn't really have any electronics, but they'd usually have the spots down well enough to where you could have some pretty good action. Maybe drill a bunch of holes, look down the hole, do a little bit of sight fishing, and see if you you know you find pockets in the weeds or it's just sand bottom, and and you're still able to have pretty good success. And uh, if you got to get a lake that has bass and pike, you can have good tip up action. Like it's just a really fun wintertime activity uh, for kids, especially at the age that I was to get into and get excited about the outdoors because it's, you're not just locked into a boat. You're not locked into a tree stand. You can move around, you can stay warm, you can throw a football around, you can grill out on the ice. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of positive aspects from that standpoint. And most people probably know about the hunting side of what I do, but I have always been a, I've always really enjoyed fishing, ice fishing part of it, open water, the other part. And living in Minnesota now, I mean, we got fishable ice in December almost every year, mid-December, sometimes even early December. And you know, on occasion, we'll have enough ice to walk out in November even, if you get a cold enough cold front. And so the biggest challenge a lot of times living up here is that you have a big amount of overlap between ice fishing and deer hunting season. Late archery, by the time you're two weeks into late archery, there's guys out there, you know, driving four-wheelers on the lake and catching limits of walleyes and crappies and whatnot. So that's the biggest trade-off, I guess, in living with, it's such a cold state is that you almost have to make that decision. Do I want a late season bow hunt or Do I want to catch up on that early season ice fishing? Cause that's some of the best, you know, times to get out there on the lake. And so between walleyes, crappies, panfish, bike, those would be kind of the the major fish that I've gone after over the years. I uh, have fish on Lake of the Woods as well as just some of the smaller, more natural-type lakes, a little bit of river fishing, and even just those shallow, weedy pond-type lakes. So it's, it's definitely something that, you know, even though I don't do as many videos or post a lot about it, it's always been something that's been pretty, I guess, near to me.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I knew that, I knew you had the, the, the experience, and you did give me some, some really good help, along the way so yeah i appreciate that and um i did get to you know just for those who are listening i got to go up and fish with garrett uh for a day i guess was that about two weeks ago now yeah must have been yeah um and and i learned a lot you know just from his style and um so i i don't know i garrett i made a little list here of some of the equipment that i thought maybe i could mention for the listeners as far as like what what i ended up getting and what i may, maybe would do a little differently if i was starting all over again yeah um, do you want me to have I some think, of those thoughts i think it's a great place
1: to start because that's probably one of the you know apart from the when and where can i go question that newbies would have yeah. the next thing is what i need to buy or what i need to rent in order to be able yeah. to go out there but and do you that know,
2: well you know what it actually would be a good thing um on the when and where, before we get into the equipment, cause it's even good for me to know, like what thickness of ice is safe? Like when would you say, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm willing to get out on that ice. Like how thick does it need to be?
1: So generally speaking, the more conservative estimates are going to come from some of the like DNR uh, websites uh, so, like, Minnesota yeah. DNR, I'm almost positive. I'm sure probably Wisconsin DNR as well will have these tables where, you know, will show you a graphical image of, hey, you have two to four inches of ice. You better not be doing anything but walking on that. You got, you know, six to eight inches of ice. Hey, maybe that's snowmobile slash um, four-wheeler. And then, you know, trucks and so on and so forth. Up, up far up north where I'm at, you'll get guys that have rigs that are nearly the size of 18-wheelers that they're bringing out on the ice up on, like, Lake of the Woods. But... <laughs> The the key thing is, is you can look at those as just general guidance. I mean, I'm sure even if you're only into deer hunting and you do scouting in areas that have swampy marshy type areas, if you're out there in late November, December, sometimes even February, early March doing scouting, you're walking on ice in certain areas and you sometimes have a pretty good understanding of how thick that ice probably is that's supporting your weight. But what you also probably notice is that if you get into a spot that has bad ice, it almost doesn't matter if it's four or five inches, if it's all spongy, you know, breaking apart, you can see discolorations in the ice or, um, you know, next to vegetation. Maybe you see some areas that look like they're just not frozen as well, uh, or certain air pockets, cracks, you can be able to, you have to use some common sense, I guess, to look at yeah. the lower end of the you know, comfort limit for ice. Cause all those recommendations you're going to see are based on solid ice, not bad ice. And that's especially important, too, late ice in, like, February, early March when that ice starts to break up. Because when <clears throat> when ice freezes, it freezes from the top down. Like, the surface gets that little skim coat on, and it just gets thicker and thicker and thicker. But when it gets warm out, it doesn't melt in the same way. It sort of starts to rot and kind of break away in chunks and dissolve almost. A lot of times it'll start at the shoreline and kind of, you know, break up from there. And so late ice becomes even more critical in certain instances to be able to understand how good the ice is because you might have 15 inches, but it might not be 15 inches of good ice.
2: Yeah. Thanks, man. Cause that's something that, you know, I've, I've kept in mind and, and really one of the things that kept me from even getting started was just that uncertainty <laughs> with the ice. So, um, so, uh, i just to the people who are listening though, I, I had a, a viewer of mine see that I wanted to go out ice fishing and live locally to where I live and was like, hey, man, I've watched a lot of your archery and hunting stuff. I, I'd like to pay you back by taking you out on the ice. So he took me out, and um, he let me just use his equipment and stuff. And he's like, I buy cheap rods, and I spend more money on the reel. And then I, I went out and grabbed – A really light action rod and then a little bit stiffer one for like walleye and stuff. So I'd have like a pan fishing, you know, bluegill type of rod, crappie, and then the stiffer, slightly stiffer one. Actually, that was when I was talking to you, Garrett. You were talking about some of the different action rods when you're getting into the walleye. So I got one that was a little bit, you know, a little bit stiffer and, um, I've, I spent probably 30 bucks on just the rod uh, for each of them. And so it was a little bit better quality rod than what the guy had. And I could really feel a big difference in the strikes. Like I could feel the strikes so much better in the poles that I bought. like when I was using his, I, I, I could, it was all sight. Like all, I was watching the rod tip and that was the only way I could tell I was getting any strikes. And of course, you know, that's that's a key thing in, in ice fishing is you're watching the tip to see if you're getting a hit. But I really could feel it better in a little bit of a better quality rod. So anybody that's listening, that's one of the things that caught my attention, I'd say, right out of the gate, is um, you know, a slightly better quality graphite rod does give you more sensitivity than the real cheap ones, you know, like your five, ten dollar, fifteen dollar um mm-hmm rods that you can get so um I don't know Garrett have you had anything any similar experience compared to with the rod quality
1: yeah if you dive into it you can get into actually quite a bit of detail and quite a bit of debate in terms of what styles of rods are better for certain things some guys like fishing ultra long rods because they can fight the fish more like a open water rod they can keep the rod loaded up more they're less likely to get slack line keep the fish pinned a little bit better, less likely to lose fish, that sort of thing. And maybe you get a really short rod if you're trying to sight fish and you want to be right over the hole and kind of block the wind so you can really see the rod tip and what it's doing. But generally speaking, apart from kind of macro level things like that, the action of the rod and and sort of the construction of the rod are going to determine how that rod fishes. There are very many rods that are made out of like a fiberglass construction have a little bit softer feel. And they're not going to transmit the feel as much to your hand, but they might be really good as a sort of a sight fishing or a sight bite indicator where there's a lot of guys that will either use a fiberglass rod like that with this really soft tip, or they might even take a normal rod and put a spring bobber on the end. And they know that they're probably not going to feel that bite, but they're intently staring at that rod tip when they see a fish come up on their locator and they know they're about to get hit at any instant. Then their yes. focus shifts right to that rod tip and they're looking for the bite or they're looking for that rod tip to either, you know, tick down or even, you know, tick back up. If a fish comes at it from the bottom and just kind of gets bites on slack line, sometimes you'll see the yeah. lines go slack and then you know that a fish is there and you set the hook. But the other intent of a rod could be that more sensitive, you know, higher modulus graphite rod blank where it's going to transmit the feel, but not necessarily... You know, bend as easily at the tip, and yeah. it's it's a matter of personal preference in some instances. It's a matter of personal debate. I think if I'm using a rod that's designed for spoon fishing, um, you know, walleyes, crappies, big perch, I like the sensitivity of that high modulus rod where I can really feel the bite. If I'm fishing panfish on ultralight tackle, I almost prefer the sight fishing type of a rod because. And sometimes even with a really sensitive rod, if they're biting ultra light, and if you have some sort of wind, it can be tough to feel that bite transmit. Even if you have braided line, which is going to be the most sensitive of the line choices because of its you know low stretch. Yeah. Uh, the other the other instance in where a softer rod, like a fiberglass rod, can be beneficial is if you're fishing live bait on like a dead stick presentation, where you have a minnow down there just soaking, and maybe you're jigging a rod next to it but you got that other rod sitting there with just a minnow on it. And a lot of times if a fish will bite that rod, you want a really soft tip to be able to load up nice and easily and bend down to indicate that you got a fish on there and he can suck that minnow into his mouth and not feel a lot of resistance. So that gives you time to go over and grab the rod and set the hook. And so on those softer type rods, a lot of times I feel like you can get away with a cheaper rod. Um, And the quality, the price for value is, you know, not necessarily as needed as much as it would be on the more sensitivity feel based rods i feel like a lot of times you get a little bit more what you pay for with those type of rod
2: yeah i think coming to this from a lifetime of only fishing open water and you know feeling feeling the rod for the as part of the feeling the strike i'm just so used to it that i think that was you know that's part of why it stood out to me the way that it did. But I, I do like what you were saying as far as those those more sensitive ones for you know the visual bite. Um, and you and you did mention the braided line. And so coming into this, I always for like a spinning reel, I always used monofilament because it, you know it it didn't hold as much memory as like fluorocarbon. And I grabbed a spool that I thought I was grabbing monofilament but it ended up being fluorocarbon but it, then when i asked you about it i mean it sounded like actually people typically use fluorocarbon over monofilament for ice fishing or braided um so i ended up swapping i had a little extra six pound braid um i think it's like a two pound diameter six pound braid kind of thing laying around so i put that on my uh, walleye spool with a, you know leader on the end and then my you know my bluegill my pan fishing pole i just put the fluorocarbon on and I got to say, I I noticed quite a difference. Like you were saying, um, the, the, cause the fluorocarbon does get some natural coil to it, you know, and I'm I'm fishing with spinning reels. And so even the coil in the line, you know, sometimes I got to almost watch the line before even my rod tip, trying to see if that line's straightening up, you know what I mean? Yep, Yep. Um, and, uh, and when it's windy out, it gets a little challenging. But um, but I did like when I tried the braid, you know, because that just hangs straight. And and um, so, but as far as your experience between the different types, do you have a? What do you think is the best? Like, if you had to pick one line across the board that you were going to put on all your your reels, because that's all you could pick. Like, which one do you think has the best overall qualities or for ice fishing?
1: So. Again, matter of debate. You can probably ask 10 different people that are really serious about ice fishing and get three different answers. But for me, especially on like a walleye or spoon jigging type rod, I prefer the braid. I like the sensitivity there. I like the low stretch. I can get really solid hook sets. But just like you did, I'll definitely put a swivel on there with a fluorocarbon leader for that low visibility and to soak up any line twist that you're going to get on those jigging type lures. Now, when it comes to some of the more finesse rigs with the panfish, a lot of times I'll use just like a really light fluorocarbon or mono line on an inline spinning reel, which is less susceptible to getting line twists. And a lot of times I'm also using tungsten jigs, which weigh a little bit more for their size. And so if I have, you know, a tungsten size bluegill jig on, that amount of weight Paired with like a three-pound test fluorocarbon on that inline reel, there's usually enough weight there and enough tension to kind of straighten that line out to where the line coils aren't as much of an issue. And then yeah. you just have to pair your rod tip, you know, up to where you're getting just a light bend from the weight of that jig, so you can detect the up bite as well as the down bite. So I don't really have, a, I guess, a strong preference there. If I had to use braid mm-hmm. for panfish, I, you know, I, I would. I'd just use a lighter braid and again stick with that fluorocarbon leader. But I think the preference. Um, would be kind of the way that I have it set up right now. Uh, you'll notice that braid, one of the downsides or detractors to braid for ice fishing is that, <clears throat> especially if you're outside, it does tend to freeze up pretty quickly. And if it's cold, like it was when we were fishing, especially if you get some wind going, and you're hole hopping around, you're reeling that line up, you're moving the next hole, dropping it back down, a lot of times you have to like take the rod out of the rod tip and basically just pull it out, for the front of the rod, instead of just, the weight of the lure won't be enough to just pull the line off the <laughs> spool anymore because it's starting yeah. to stick and freeze on the spool. And if you're just jigging there in one spot, a lot of times you get ice build up on the line itself, right where the you know surface of the water meets the air, yep. and it'll build up yeah. as a big ice block there. And you basically just have to take that every now and then and just kind of rub it in your mouth and melt it off, and start jigging again. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it seems like you know braid is is also pretty durable. You have that six or eight pound braid, and you do get a little bit of ice there. You can be somewhat aggressive with it in terms of just kind of stripping that ice off and then getting back to fishing. Whereas yeah. you know that three pound fluorocarbon or or uh, mono, I might have to baby it a little bit more. That's something that uh, there's a a guy who does a lot of ice fishing TV shows, Jason M- Mitchell. I, I kind of mirrored my approach after what he does and and has I guess advocated for.
2: Yeah. I think, you know, after ice fishing a little bit this year, I may get an inline reel for next year for the for like my pan fishing, my more light lightweight rig, because with the um, spinning reel and the fluorocarbon line that I've used this year, it has been tough in certain instances, uh, to because of that little bit of coil that ends up in the line. I mean it's only the line's only a few weeks old, you know, and I've been out ice fishing maybe eight to 10 times in those couple weeks, but it's, um, you know, with a, when I'm fishing for like bluegill and I have to use a really small jig head, you know, there isn't, there is not much weight to hold that, pull that line straight, you know, so, um, you're fighting with that to try to, you know, get the, figure out the bite. And so, yeah, I think next year I might swap over and get, an inline reel like you, like kind of like your setup, um and then like for for most of the fishing I've done this year, I've just used kind of the jigs and wax worms. And one thing that kind of surprised me in talking to some people and even fishing with one guy is pe- people just use the minnow head. A lot of people just use the head of the minnow. Yep. I don't know if that's something that is common for you too, Garrett, but. I was surprised that they, there was a guy who just had scissors. He was just cutting the head off the minnow and putting it on and throwing the, the minnow body on the ice and just leaving it there, basically. I mean, I was like, wow.
1: Yeah, that's really common, especially especially because a lot of the baits that people are jigging with, be it a spoon or like a jigging Rapala, you want a good likelihood that you're going to be able to set the hook right away on that fish and be able to hook them. It's not like a jig in a minnow open water where you might feel that fish pick up that bait and you just kind of give the rod tip to him a little bit and feel him munching on it, munching on it, and then you time it and you know you set the hook when you think he's got it. With ice fishing, a lot of times you see that fish come up and it's like as soon as you feel that tap, you're setting the hook. And so yeah. having just that minnow head gives you a little bit better likelihood that you are not going to short bite and just grab the minnow body and then you'll miss him when you go to set the hook. But that being said, I mean – it almost just kind of depends. Sometimes they like a big profile. When we were out on Red Lake, uh, fishing back in December, I was using a pretty big buckshot spoon and a full fathead minnow on. And I was out fishing my dad who was just using minnow heads, um, at that time. So sometimes they like the bigger profile and sometimes they'll hit it aggressively enough to where you're still going to get a pretty good hookup ratio using that whole minnow. It just kind of depends. The other advantage of sometimes using a live minnow is that, if you're holding the bait still, that minnow's still wiggling around and giving some movement. Whereas with just the minnow head, you hold that thing still, which for a lot of guys, if they're watching their flasher, a lot of times they'll see a fish come in and they'll, they'll freeze and just kind of hold the bait still. Well, now that bait is not moving anymore and it, it looks more lifeless. And in some instances, I think that gets a fish to turn away. So it's it's all kind of trial and error. A lot of times they'll start with a minnow head, for fish or for walleyes. Um, sometimes you don't need a minnow at all. I had one fish that hit with a minnow, a full minnow. Um, missed him, and he stayed on the screen. And I kept jigging that bait. I could feel the weight difference. I knew he took the minnow because it was just significantly lighter. And he just kept working it, kept jigging it, and he came back in and hit the spoon with no minnow on it at all. And then ended up landing that fish.
2: Okay. Now, when you're hooking the minnow, um, are you hooking it back like on the top by the dorsal fin and letting it hang that way,
1: or? If I'm jigging, usually I'll hook it through the lips.
2: Oh, through the lips. Okay.
1: Yep. Now, if, okay. it's a, if it's a tip-up, then I'll usually hook it by the dorsal fin.
2: Okay. Um, one thing that, you know, again, being new at this, there's two, two kind of next components for me that I was thinking about is, well, one is the flasher and the other is the maps. So my first, like, couple times going out, I was using, uh, you know, um, there's some aquatic maps that I found online just to, f- you know, figure out where the breaks were, where the bench-type areas were, and just – Different And some of them were even saying where flooded timber was and stuff. So I was trying to, you know, use that to figure out where would be good places to go. And um, I ended up buying, like, okay, so let me just say this too. I found out very quickly that ice getting into ice fishing can become very expensive very quick. You know, like... You can, you can easily dump over $1,000 in, in a blink of an eye, depending on how you're approaching it. And I didn't really want to do that. Um, so I was looking into um, some form of a fish finder, you know. And, I mean, obviously, you know, most people are using flashers. I ended up buying one. I had some gift cards for, like, Amazon. So I ended up using those. I bought, like, this, what is it, a, um, Lawrence? I, I don't know. It's, like, a $250 type of a of a fish finder that you could it had an ice fishing um transducer and one that you could put like on the side of a boat like portable suction cup and i thought okay for my kayak in the summertime that now now i could use this thing the whole year long and so i ended up getting that uh there there is a flasher mode on it but i haven't really figured out how to get the sensitivity settings right to where it actually works you know yeah. um so i usually have been putting it on just the like the regular i don't know what you call a fish finder setting and um i can see pretty often i can just i can see when a fish is coming up so it's giving me that information and the reason why aside from just seeing when the fish is coming up getting close to your bait that you know that like there's one spot i tried early on that I thought, you know, based on the topography of the underwater, I thought this is a good spot. I, this, this could definitely produce some fish. And I, I was there for like two hours and I marked one fish briefly and I didn't get a hit. But actually having those electronics to at least let me know that, OK, I only marked one fish, that's different than if I marked 20 fish and I didn't get a strike because it's like, okay, something else is majorly wrong in that scenario. So it just is helpful information, that electronic. And then when I went and fished with you, you let me borrow one of your um, flashers. And I had to say, like, I really felt like it was a lot easier using that um, than the fish finder. So anybody listening, I mean, everyone has – to figure out what uses they need. But if, if they're just planning to do, uh, ice fishing with it, I would, if and I was doing it again, I would just get a flasher for sure. Yeah. So uh, go ahead. What do you think? I Same. Mean, and also the, the price changes, the price variances too. Like how does that impact the quality of a flasher?
1: Yep. Same here. I actually started with a Helix five, which is a unit, you know, kind of like that Lowrance that you bought where you can do open water with it as well. And I do hook that up to my kayak. And it gives you some other interesting things like you can have mapping with GPS, at least on the the model that I have. And so you can have your lake map with your chip and your one foot contours right in on that unit and run it and split screen and store all your waypoints on it and then have your flash remote on the other side. So there, there are some definite advantages to it, at least on my unit. I know there's a slight delay where I do a jig and the mark going up and down on the screen is, you know, a few tenths of a second behind. Um, The other, I guess, disadvantage about a unit like that, you know, assuming that you get all the accessories and you got the ice transducer instead of the open water transducer, which the open water one will still work. A lot of times you just got to fixture it in such a way that it actually points straight down. Whereas ice fishing transducers are usually designed to be able to just hang and be able to point straight down just by their weight. And so one of the downsides to a big LCD style locator, especially if it's a big screened one, like a nine ten incher is they will chew through batteries uh, so much faster than a flasher. I mean, a flasher is a pretty simple object. They've been around for decades, and some people treat them as sort of outdated. And in some regards, they probably are, but they also just simply work. I mean, they're very durable. Uh, I have a Humminbird ICE 35, and I also have a Vexilar FLX 28. And the one that I lent you was that ICE 35 from Humminbird. And like you mentioned, I mean, it's... It's just, they're simple. You turn it on, you stick it in the water. The Vexlar one that I have has got a lot more like bells and whistles to it that are maybe like you have to kind of know what you're looking for in order to get the most use out of it. It's not just to turn it on and run with it type of a piece of equipment. Um, so there's some, there's some pros and cons to that. But if you get a battery that is lithium and the chemistry there is the, uh, I think lithium iron phosphate batteries not not lithium ion uh, but most of the lithium batteries that you get from like amped outdoors or you know like Vexlar makes one or like there's just ice fishing specific flasher batteries that weigh like a third as much and they'll power a flasher for like 24 to 36 hours so you can go on a weekend trip and just never have to worry about charging that battery fish all day and so that's a really big advantage Where as you if you have like a nine or 10 inch flasher or a uh, nine or 10 inch LCD screened locator, you might be getting four hours, six hours, eight hours, depends on what the battery size is and how much amperage that units charge or using. But you're going to have to charge that thing a lot more or have backup batteries. If you're going on, say like a trip. Um, so that's kind of the pros and cons of it. If you step way up in price, you can get something like a panoptics or live scope or the, you know, various equivalents of it. And, that technology, if you haven't seen it yet or if any you know, people listening haven't seen that, if you Google videos of LiveScope, Garmin LiveScope ice fishing, it's it's really pretty remarkable in terms of what it allows you to do because you can, you can use it as a normal top-looking-down type of electronic, but it'll show you what's going on in real time. And so you can have your bait jigging up and down, and you can see a fish you know, actually swimming, it's not just a, you know, a one dimensional line basically that's going up and down, but it's, it's moving around on that screen in two dimensions. And you can see detail enough to where you can almost tell sometimes, Hey, that looks like a long, narrow fish. That's probably a pike, or maybe that's a crappie down there. Um, you can see a Christmas tree of crappies and be able to tell the shape of the school. You can put it in front facing mode and literally see like 80, a hundred feet out and spin that thing around in every direction And be able to say, "Oh, there's a school of fish, sixty feet over to our west. Let's go drill some holes over there." And a piece of equipment like that is not used by a whole lot of people because of the price. It's very prohibitive. It's like two and a half to three grand to get a setup Mm -hmm. like that. A lot of professional fishermen will use them in bass or walleye tournaments, um, just because it's such a big advantage in a lot of fisheries and a lot of scenarios that if they don't have one, they're almost you know kind of behind the curve. Um, and so I used to fish that they have a pretty big use as well in terms of time saving, especially if you're fishing on like a basin type bite, we have to do a lot of searching to find fish, but they're certainly, you know, not needed by any stretch of the means. I mean, I don't have one. It'd be cool to have one, but at the same time, it's, it's really just a time saver as much as anything and certain bites too. You don't need the electronics. If you're fishing in very shallow site fishing type applications, or maybe you're fishing in three, four or five feet of water and it's all just kind of flat and weedy, then in those types of instances, a flasher might not help you out as much, but what might be even more beneficial is to set up a, a shack, pack in snow around it. So you get a nice dark environment to work in and then just literally sit over the hole and watch your bait working down there and watch the fish come swim in and be like, Oh, that's a perch down there. I can see the bars or you can see your little wax room disappear. And then you set the hook. Um, so a lot of this is very dependent on what style of fishing you're going to do. But I, I totally agree with you that if a guy's going to go and purchase his, his one thing for ice fishing, it's really tough to go wrong with a flasher. There's a long, yeah. long response, <laughs> but a lot yeah. of, a lot of different ways you can go about it.
2: Yeah, sure. Now I, I mean, related to that was the first guy that I went out with, he had a six inch diameter auger, you know, so the whole six inches and, um, And, you know, you got to pull your transducer out every time you hook a fish with that. I mean, there's just not a whole lot of room to work with, especially if you're brand new like me. So um, I decided I was going to get an 8-inch diameter auger just to give myself a little more room in the hole. And uh, while I appreciated that, I also was trying to save money. I bought just, you know, the hand crank auger, you know. And to be honest, you know, after – drilling three holes i'm like yeah i'm done <laughs> you know like <laughs> i mean you go out fishing and it like it, it takes a while especially if you're dealing with a couple feet of ice it, it takes a while to get through and it's a lot of work and um you know so i ended up buying an attachment and trying to hook it up to a drill now i asked one guy like you know what kind of drill and he's like oh any drill will work so i just tried my drill that i had here and I mean, I got one, two, three... I got a couple holes drilled. It would stop, like, every couple seconds. It would drill for a few seconds and just stop. And then I'd have to let go of the trigger, start again. And I was able to drill, like, I'd say three, four, five... I don't remember how many holes, but it was... It died after a couple holes, basically. And... Um, and then i i asked you and i asked a couple more people about it and you all basically said the same thing it was a a milwaukee particular milwaukee one and i ultimately i ended up going out and buying the equivalent of that because it makes a huge difference like when i fished with you i mean we you probably drilled close to 20 holes that day you know and it's just in a matter of seconds you got a hole drilled and you know, I found you need to, well, in my opinion, just the little that I know, you you need to be able to move around a little bit. If you're not catching fish, you got to move. And when I only had the hand crank version, you know, it's like, do I want to spend 15 minutes trying to drill another (laughs) hole over there? And if I get there, am I even going to catch anything? So, um, so I think that anybody listening, You know, take the auger a little seriously and maybe look at what options are going to fit for you budget-wise to be able to have some kind of powered device is my opinion because it really helps a lot if you can hop around holes. I mean, what do you think, Eric? Yeah, I agree.
1: You know, when I started ice fishing, really your only option was gas. Gas augers were king. You didn't really have any alternatives to that except for the hand crank but since and propane made a little bit of a show there too, but I think by and large electric is definitely the way to go and has kind of overtaken the industry in a lot of regards. So you can buy electric augers that are all just set up, ready to go and have big, you know, 40 volt batteries on them, or you can do what we did and just get the, the drill route with a, a hand crank. And I think two important criteria, make sure you have a good auger bit that you're pairing with your drill um, I mean, like I have the strike master laser, which is probably the only strike master one I would use or the light flight. Not like their cheaper moral one, because the blade is not going to be as sharp. It's going to put a lot more stress on the drill. It's going to be a lot harder to drill than a auger with a sharp blade. Um, K drill is another company that makes, um, an auger bit. That's going to be more than suitable for, you know, powering with these higher end drills and then just pairing it with a really good you know, high quality drill. And when we're talking these nicer drills, I think the one that you have and the one that I have, they're both over 200 bucks for the drill and the, the batteries that came along with it. And I think they're, I
2: think mine came out to 300 by the time you got tax involved.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we're talking like what, 1200 pounds, 1200 foot pounds of torque or inch pounds. I can't remember which, which they use. But
2: so I bet it makes a huge difference. Now I wanted to just share too with everybody that's listening is, You know, one thing I guess I've come to learn about ice fishing is, you know, a lot of people have their own style. Some people just set up a shack and just sit in in that shack and fish for hours. And then when I fished with you, we were hole hopping the whole day. You know, it was like, you know, five degrees out and we just hopped holes all day. And I, you know, I've fished both scenarios and I just feel like hole hopping, that's more my style in a sense because. find them i want to have action so i'm always moving and trying new spots when i'm open water fishing even if i'm on even if i'm fishing from the land i'm moving i'm i'm not going to stand in one spot in the bank and i think um hole hopping really fits better for my style of fishing and i just i feel like you know you just you end up with more fish at the end of the day um in my short experience with ice fishing
1: yeah there's some instances in where sitting still makes sense. And there's probably not a lot of benefit to moving around. There's other scenarios where you're wasting your time if you're not moving around. And I think the type of fishing we did, I just know historically from fishing that lake that if I drill 20 holes and I drop down there and there's three fish down there, you catch one or two of them. You just caught the active two fish out of that pod. You go walk over the next way you pop one or two more. And you can catch, you know, if you're going after like a limit of crappies, you can do that in a third of the time that you would just waiting and working the fish out of that one single hole.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it, it, it does help having the shack, um, and speaking of shack, like, um, you know, so I, I ended up picking up a tent, a used tent. It's, well, I, I started off with one of my hunting ground blinds and, um, I didn't have anything to hold it down, you know, and like, you know, uh, little anchors for in the ice I ended up learning about that later. <laughs> um, but I realized later, like, people have those flip-over what – what do they call them? Is it a flip-over, yeah, just flip-over shelter? Yep. Okay. Th- that would fit my style of fishing a lot more because it's so much easier to pack up and move. And there's, like there, – you know, it's connected to a sled – and there's usually some seats on the sled. So I guess you're, I'm guessing the weight of your body kind of holds the thing in place. You don't have to stake it all down. I don't know. Maybe you still do, but um, it's just a lot more mobile. So um, if I had it all to do again, I probably would have just waited till I came across a half decent deal on one of those flip over ones and went that direction rather than having just the, you know, the, the pop up tent style that, you know, you're going to have to stake down every time. Um, I don't know. Do you have a preference on on the uh, the type of shelters if you're using them? Yeah,
1: I think I'd agree that generally for my style, the flipovers is a little better. I do like the hub from the aspect of if you do have a few people out, they they can be it's easier to get them more spacious, and you can set them up. You know, pack the snow around them, and you get a lot more workable volume inside. If you're trying to film a video, you got more space in there, so you can put the camera on the other end, and you know, have two people on the other side and film that way. Um, but yeah, especially if you have wind to contend with and you got to stake that thing down or it's going across the lake, it's just, once you get that thing set up, it's like, I don't want to move this thing again. Right. Whereas with the flip over, it's literally just, you know, flip the thing up, drag it another 20 feet over to your next hole, pop it back down, start sitting and fishing.
2: Yeah. Um, now and one other thing too, that was really foreign for me when it came to ice fishing was driving on the ice. I re- I didn't want to do it. <laughs> um, and then um, when um, when I met up with you and you came over to get me, I was like, "Oh, so am I throwing my stuff in the back of your truck?" You're like, "No, just follow me." I'm like, "Okay," you know. <laughs> so I'm just driving across the ice for the first time, and you know, the ice does groan a little bit. Like when you're out there fishing and someone else is driving by, it's you know, it's making some noise, you know and um well even like you said there's people that have like 18 wheeler rigs almost are dragging out there there was a big huge pickup truck dragging this huge you know camping type trailer behind it and I the the whole rig looks so heavy and he's just going out across the ice like it's nobody's business like I mean it's a different culture it's not something I grew up with and I'm not used to so it's like it was a little far for me. So I snapped a picture and I posted it on like Facebook or something. And somebody commented, I didn't realize this component. He's like, oh, yeah, make sure your windows are open and your seatbelts off. I'm like, well, that makes sense. I didn't even think of that, you know, because if if for whatever reason you do go through the ice, you know, you don't want to be able to get out. So, right. Um, that would be something that I learned this year, you know, is, you know. If you're going to drive out there, you know, just there's a few safety precautions you still even want to check. And I do remember your windows were down or at least your driver window was down when I saw you. But I didn't know why. <laughs> you know, now I do.
1: Yeah. And that's even culturally a thing, I guess, not necessarily the windows down, but the, the wheelhouse and the, the big giant fish house thing. That when I lived in Wisconsin, we didn't have that as much. I mean, there was guys that had smaller shacks stuff that they drag out there, stuff that was big enough to, you know, maybe sit a few buckets in a couple of guys, sturgeon spearing, you know, type, type rigs. But it wasn't until I moved to Minnesota and especially started fishing up on like Red Lake or Lake of the Woods that you really start to see a lot of those big ice castle and, you know, similar brand type rigs. I mean, some of those things run 60, 70, $80,000 and they look really, I mean, they look like really nice campers on the inside And for some people that spend a lot of time ice fishing, we obviously got a really long season for it. Um, you know, that's their investment. And then they go and spend a lot of time out in the lake and on a lake like Lake of the Woods or Red Lake, they're big basin lakes, big basin bites where you have a relatively flat bottom and fish just kind of roam. It is pretty effective on those lakes to just park in one spot and you'll just catch fish every now and then as they swim through. And that can be a pretty fun setup.
2: Yeah. I I do think like for anybody listening, you actually when I first started to get into ice fishing, I kept thinking of that movie grumpy old man. I don't know if anybody saw it back in the day, but um, it it when I saw that movie, there was something I didn't really acknowledge the 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 thought, but there was a thought back in the back of my brain almost like that's just that's just different. You know, that whole that whole mentality, that whole culture of being out on the ice like that in the little shacks, it's just its own thing that I'm not accustomed to. And like, after going out on the lakes a few times, like up with you, it's it, you see all these people all like in a big, huge circle with vehicles and they're all just all set up and just fishing. It's, it's its own culture. And I can't even put it in words. You just, at least for me, it just, it just feels like you're in a different place. It's a different type of it's a different way of life, you know, and um, I don't know. It's unique to itself, so it's definitely neat to experience. And I don't know if that's, I mean, you kind of grew up with it a little bit more, so I don't know if it, if it kind of sticks out to you in that same kind of way. But coming to it as an adult, not having much experience, it just feels like you're stepping into a whole different world almost.
1: Oh yeah, it's it's totally it's totally different. It's its own thing, and and you get personalities right. You, you got the guy who's who the lone wolf, and he's out there bouncing around a whole lot, and he doesn't want somebody comes and parks nearby him. He's packing up, and he's going to some spot where he's not going to have anybody to contend with. And for other guys, it's a party on the ice. You get all the guys yeah. together, get out there, and, you know, drink some some beers, throw a pigskin around, have some tip-ups out, you know, especially in Wisconsin where you can have three rods. You know, it's pretty common to throw out these big tip-up spreads and just kind of camp out on the ice and just watch for flags going up.
2: Mm-hmm. So we didn't catch anything on tip-up. How does that work exactly?
1: So you have a spool that kind of runs in line to the main shaft that has a little, I guess, cross member on the top of it. And when the spool spins, that little cross member at the top also spins. And so you can set your – you pull a line out of the spool with your bait on it, and you set it a certain depth, usually like a foot, foot and a half off the bottom. And then – you can take your flag and you bend the spring-loaded flag underneath that cross member on the top of the the spool shaft. And so when a fish starts taking line out, it'll start rotating the spool, which rotates that uh, little cross member, and there's nothing holding the spring down anymore. The flag goes up. And so the fish at that point is just able to kind of free spool. It can take out as much line as it wants. And you see that flag up, and you can go run over to the tip up, pick it up out of the water, and just grab the line by hand, feel that the fish is on the other end with the weight and basically just give it a good yank to set the hook and then just pull a line in hand over hand. Uh, The Mm -hmm. line that you use on tip ups is a much different type of line that you use on a a reel. Um, It's very susceptible to getting tangled. So a lot of times you use very like heavy, thick braided line on the tip ups because it's much less likely to get tangled and froze on the ice and, you can just kind of, you know, hand over hand and just let the line, you know, pile up onto itself to get that fish out of the hole. And then it's pretty easy to, to re-rig it and put it back down.
2: Okay, cool. Now, do, do they usually swallow it pretty deep then um, because they just get to run with it or?
1: They can. It, it depends mean... on depends on how aggressive the fish are and it depends on how long it takes you to, to get to the flag. You know, if you're sitting inside and... The flag goes up, you don't see it and you go out and check and it's been up for 10 minutes Then probably a pretty good chance. But there's sometimes too, especially with walleyes, they'll be real finicky and maybe they'll play around with the minnow a little bit and they'll kind of, you know, bite it and drag it for like a foot, six inches, eight inches or whatever, and just kind of drop it. Mm -hmm. And you'll get days like that where you get a lot of flags and you end up not even catching that many fish because they're just not, they're just not taking it in. And maybe they're just, you know, kind of nipping at it a little bit.
2: Well, I was trying to think if there was anything else that you know pops in my head from like getting started in the ice fishing equipment-wise, and I I can only think of two other things that I got that that have been pretty helpful. Well, I already had a buddy heater, so like that's nice to have if you're going to be up in the tent. But um, uh, one guy recommended I get the it's like a little you, you pull it over your shoes and it's got like little metal you you just pull it over the sole of your shoe basically i ended up just picking up some cheap thing off of amazon for like 13 bucks and um now down here where i'm at in iowa we had the top layer of snow melt and then refreeze so it was pretty pretty slippery ice basically so i was really actually happy to have those because it helped me get good traction pulling the sled and the sled's the other thing i got that's i mean if there's one piece of equipment I am so glad I have, it's that sled because I don't like to drive out on the ice. So I don't, you know, like when I was with you, Garrett, we just drove out to the spot and just, you know, if we needed something, we walked over to the car and got it. But I would rather park and just walk out to wherever I want to go. And having that sled has been so nice. I just throw everything in the sled and drag it out nice and easy. But if I didn't have those little spiky things for my shoes, I would almost been running in place trying to pull the sled in some locations because it gets so slippery, and you know if you don't have any traction and you're pulling a sled that's got you know some weight to it because it's got all your equipment, it would just be kind of tough. So those those are the last two things I can think of as a newbie getting into ice fishing that I picked up that I'm actually really glad I have those two things. But I think if you're fishing in an area where there's snow on the lake, you don't really need those shoe things. But but if it's ice-ice, if it's then, yeah, they're nice to have those little – whatever those grippy things are for your shoes. Yep. And the other
1: thing to factor in, too, is if you have one of those flip-over style shelters, you're basically getting an integrated sled with that system. So you yeah. can have your flip-over, and that's where you store your rods and your bucket and your ice scoop. Ice scoop is another one that, you know, it's easy to overlook, but you definitely need one. Oh, yeah. Uh, to be able to scoop I didn't out the
2: – that until you – yeah, I didn't think of that at all until you mentioned it, and and yeah, that's a necessity. You, you're you're right. I mean, don't leave home without that that little ladle thing, whatever you call it.
1: Yeah, you can when you drill the holes. If you leave the auger spinning a little bit, as like like slowly pull it up and just keep letting that auger spin, it'll throw a lot of those ice chips up out of the hole, and you're left with just kind of a nice clean hole. But if you got a little bit, you know, sub freezing weather, you accidentally kick some snow back in. Yeah, you, you definitely need that uh, scoop to keep reopening the hole. If it's cold even enough, you it almost, it, it almost have to, to sit inside because it's just too much work to keep the holes open.
2: Yeah. Well, even when, when you and I were out, I know you were just kind of kicking the holes back open with your boot, but I was carrying around that little ladle thing, and I was using that to kind of break up and scoop off that top layer of ice that formed. I mean, I guess it's, you know, everyone has their own approach, but I – I appreciated having that thing even for that use, you know, so definitely a nice little thing only like a 10 bucks or whatever for one of those things, whatever it was. But yeah, I like having that.
1: Yep. I also, go ahead. If if you're going early season from a safety aspect, it's good to have a spud bar, which is just a really heavy, you know, big steel bar that has a chisel tip on the end. And you can use that to just kind of, you know, if it's really thin ice, Make sure that you're, you know, using that spud bar to give it a good, you know, kind of work your way out and test the ice as you walk with that spud bar to make sure you're not going to all of a sudden start walking on a really, you know, thin ice spot. Um, I know a lot of times we used to use those for reopening the holes if you had, say, like an inch of refreeze overnight and you wanted to fish the same hole the next day. But a lot of times you can use your auger to do that same thing. Um, And also they make ice picks. I don't know if ice picks are the right word, but safety picks kind of where you have these little... Handles that are attached to a lanyard you can kind of drape over your neck and they have retractable picks that are inside the handles. And so if you fall into the water, you can grab those, reach out onto the ice and just, you know, stab those handles into the ice. And when you do that, the pressure, you know, pushes the spring out to where you have that sharp pick now exposed and you can actually use that to grab and get some traction on the ice to pull yourself back up out of the water. So, if you're on like a thin ice scenario um uh, it's definitely important to have the the safety aspect in mind some of the uh the bibs and jackets specific to ice fishing have flotation built in them, and now as well it's become pretty popular,
2: yeah, I think maybe next year I might uh invest in well even just like the i mean it's it gets really cold out there, and I've been using like some of my hunting clothes to to do it but I think having some of the ice fishing specific gear like the bibs and the coat, especially with the flotation, I think for next year I might look into getting some of that, you know, because I hope to do it, you know, do it even more come next year. You know, now that I got a little bit of a feel for it, you know, get out even sooner.
1: Yeah. And the other thing about the specific to ice fishing bibs especially is they're made to be able to handle a lot of abuse to where, you know, maybe your, your hunting bibs or whatever, they're made for sitting in a tree stand. They're not made for kneeling and, you know, shoveling yourself around on, on really sharp ice bits. Um, but if I'm fishing all by myself and a lot of times I don't feel like getting everything set up, I'm just hole hopping for like an hour or two quick. I'll just drop down to my knees and just, you know, fish right over top of the hole with the flasher and then stand back up, walk over to the next hole, etc And, and even, you know, drill in the hole and then pulling all the the water and the ice chunks out with your auger you get a lot of stuff that splashes on your shins and you can get ice build up there so having that really durable fabric and nice hard shell ice fishing bibs is a nice asset to have for sure
2: yeah and there was times that i did wish i had that for like just to kneel and hole hop it would have been easier quicker more comfortable and i didn't have since i didn't have those i didn't i didn't do it but i would have preferred it and I did notice, like, when you and I went out and you were drilling all those holes, yeah, you got a little, a little crust of uh, ice built up on the bottom of your, your, um, your bibs today from all the holes that you drilled. Um, but, you know, I could, I could tell that the, they were built to handle that, you know, and it, and it wasn't affecting you at all. Uh, my clothes, I don't, I didn't. It, they weren't there. Actually, was wearing Wooltimate, you know, like a Cabell's Wooltimate suit, just because it was the warmest thing I had. But, I mean, that's kind of like a wool material, and it would just it would have gotten ugly if I would have had that <laughs> soaking wet, you know, from from the drilling of the holes. So,
1: yep, for sure. I think we've we've touched on a lot of the gear. Yeah. We, you know, talked about the sleds, the shelters, auger, yeah. scoop, rods
2: line yeah locator think, you know one thing I one thing I maybe didn't mention about the rods is I can't remember the exact length I think I bought a 24 inch and a 30 inch the 24 inch being like the lighter action for pan fishing but I did notice like when I was in the tent like the 30 inch rod I, I wished it was shorter because you know when you're in a tent and you're in a tighter space or maybe I was just – maybe when I started in my ground blind, but I wished it was a little bit shorter. So I would say I I even have a personal preference to, that's growing depending on whether or not I'm fishing in a tent or just in the open space, like on the open ice. I think having a shorter pole when you're in, and in a confined space – it's a little it's a little easier to use and that's just that was for me at least and so i just wanted to throw that out there that's probably one thing i i thought of earlier and never mentioned
1: yeah that's definitely a very good thing to keep in mind it's one of the main i guess selling points or criteria to to analyze is if you're going to be fishing a lot in the shack especially smaller shack shorter rod is the way to go If you plan on doing sight fishing, ultra short rod is the way to go. Really the the time when a longer rod does start to make sense. If you do a lot of hole hopping outside and you prefer standing instead of kneeling and you like having the extra bend that that long rod gives you in order to be able to keep the fish, you know, pinned and, and be able to, to eat up a lot of that, uh, a lot of that slack.
2: I think one last thing, too, I, and I don't know, like, your audience as far as if any of them get into self-filming stuff, but one last thing I did notice is, like, I was going to film our outing, you know, but my GoPros, I guess I don't have the cold, I just have the regular batteries, and they would, you know, after being there for 20 minutes, they just would not even power on. They couldn't, they wouldn't stay on. So, um, so p- for, for self-filming... You know, in really some of the really cold temps that you get into, having the the shack set up with even a heater running, you, you're almost guaranteed to be able to run your your video equipment. Um, and so, if anybody out there is self filming and they want to do ice fishing or do more of it, um, that's a consideration to keep in mind too, as far as if you want to get any video production done. Um, with I mean, I think the high temp the day that you and I fished was like maybe five or six degrees. I don't remember now, but it was it was a cold day all the way through. And um, my my cameras just didn't handle it, you know.
1: Yep. Yep, definitely something that's good to keep in mind.
2: Well, I appreciate you letting me come and chat today, Garrett, and um hopefully we can get together again soon for whatever, whether it's do some three D shooting this summer. I haven't done one in a long time or get together next fall for a deer hunt, whatever it is, you know, hopefully we can meet up sometime in the near future.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Same. Good having you on the, conver- on the podcast for conversation. And I'm sure that, uh, the discussion here will hopefully help some people who are in the same shoes as you looking to get into it and trying yeah. to, to figure out what they should, you know, deem important or not. So
2: yeah.
1: where can people, if they don't already know where to find you work, where, where's the best place to find some of your adventures?
2: Uh yeah, I think you know YouTube, if you type in Sean's Outdoor Adventures, you'll find my channel. It's I spell my name S E A N. It's the actually the Irish or Gaelic version of Sean. So, yeah, you can find me there. I have a website too, seansoutdooradventures.com. Those are the main things. I, I mean, I have a Facebook, Sean's Outdoor Adventures Facebook and Instagram. I do stuff on them as well, but only because people tell you you're supposed to. <laughs> I don't um it's hard to keep up with it all as one person, um, so. But yeah, I, I've, I've probably got over 700 videos on YouTube. Uh, there's a lot of content there for people to just absorb. Most of it's archery and hunting and stuff like that, but when I originally started the channel, I intended to do everything, including fishing, which is why I called it Sean's Outdoor Adventures, not Sean's Archery Channel or Sean's Bowhunting. I, you know, uh, I just haven't had a, a good chance to do more of the fishing in the, in the past, Uh, But I'm hoping to to get more of that going, you know, now and forward for the channel. But yeah, Sean's Outdoor Adventures on YouTube is probably the best place to go if you want to see any of that stuff.
1: That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.